or take your Bibles and turn to First Peter chapter four. We've come to the latter portion of the letter to from Peter to the people undergoing persecution in Asia Minor. And just as in the example of our Apostle Paul, he's coming to the practical application portions of his letter. He's talking now about the question, so what? So what that these things are true, that you have been born again, that you have suffered for the gospel, that you have been chosen and are cherished by the Lord, and that you are aliens and strangers in this world. So what? That you are under the authority of others and you need to be a servant above all. Well, in chapter 4, the first few verses, he spoke of the former way of living, the former outcome of their life. In verse uh, 3, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account, and so will we, to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, to verse 7 this week. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has to serve others faithfully, administering God's gift God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Let us pray together. How we rejoice, O oh Lord, in the majesty and grandeur of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have come here today to rejoice in that grace as displayed in the table of the Lord. But before we come to that table, we pause eagerly and for refreshment in opening your word. And we ask that you might provide that refreshment and that insight that is needed. We are your sheep, we are your children, and we cannot be a faithful flock or an, a faithful child unless we hear your word and do it. So we pray that you might open our hearts to it, our minds, and our wills, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. One of the questions facing our day today, our culture today is, is there a right way to live or a wrong way to live? Most people would say yes. They just wouldn't agree on what that would be. You will hear people who don't believe in God condemning others' actions and, and speeches and statements based on their own set of morality and their own set of uh, guidelines. You will hear Christians saying that something is right or wrong depending on what the Bible says. But how do you know? How do you know whether it's right or wrong? 
As I say in the introduction here, modern Western morality says that we can know nothing about whether or not there is a God or ultimate truth. But it asserts such things as that racism is wrong and that lying is wrong, etc. Generally speaking, in our culture today, those two things are considered to be wrong. But this is a baseless assertion, really. Unless you base it on the Bible, they're just picking things that they like. It has no grounding in truth or objective reality. It is mere opinion. For example, why can we follow our sexual instincts as our, our culture becomes more and more permissive there, but not our violent instincts? That's condemned. Why should we be good? Why should we not rob and pillage? It seems like we're headed in that direction. And it seems as though there's no opposition to the drift of our culture and our society more and more toward lawlessness, especially regarding the law of God. And how are we to know what to do? How should we then live? Well, we're told what not to do here in the scriptures, but many people that you know would disagree. They would say, this is how I find meaning in life. I party. I take time off for me. I do what I want to do, and if it feels good, I do it. Otherwise, there is no meaning in life. There's no satisfaction. And with the writer to the Ecclesiastes, life is meaningless, the chasing after wind. Indeed, life under the sun is meaningless unless we find authority and direction somewhere. And the Bible asserts, and Peter builds on that assertion, that there is a right and a wrong, and let me tell you now how you should live. In the midst of persecution, in troubled times, not out of a great deal of strength in the world, but from the inner strength that comes from God. Christian morality, what he's about to recommend to us, is grounded in biblical revelation. We say these things because God gave us these words to say. He handed the law, literally handed the law to Moses and wrote it with his finger. He gave us his word and preserved it through all time so that we might hear it in every culture and in every century, so that it might be held up as the truth to guide us in a timeless fashion. Jesus said, the word of God will never pass away. It will always be true. And one of the first things we'll learn upon arriving in heaven is that it was always wrong to lie, and it's wrong to lie here too. The word of God, the standards of God's word are permanent. They stretch into eternity. They're not open to amendment by certain circumstances. They are his eternal word. And based upon that authority, we can say that this is how we should live. Now, we grant that many folks today don't accept the Bible as the authority upon which to base their lives. And so that becomes the real question. Is the scriptures the way, the, the foundation for your life? And that's for another day. But for the Christian, it's also an important question. Because we assert that the Bible is the way we should live that the, it is the authority in our lives, and yet, if we're honest, we inwardly struggle with whether or not to obey it and how to apply it. And so Francis Schaeffer famously asked, how should we then live? And that's where we turn our attention this morning. 
Christian morality, as I say, is grounded in biblical revelation, not human opinion. So when it contends that something is right or wrong, it has authority behind the assertion. So I'm here to tell you what the Bible says today, and it's plain enough, clear enough. The question is in the application, but let's take a moment just to be sure that we're on the right track. He says in this passage, beginning in verse 4, the end of all things is near. We'll come to that in a moment. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other, because love covers a multitude of sins, offer hospitality. And so he's giving us a list of things. It's not an exhaustive or a complete list. We find other exhortations in other parts of the Scripture. But Jesus is saying to us today, because I died on the cross and gave myself for you, and because I have come and given you new life through Jesus Christ, as you have trusted in me by faith, these are the things I want you to do. These are the characteristics I want to be characteristic of your life. These are, in a sense, the fruit of the Spirit, although they're not listed here under that category. Why? Because the end of all things is near. This presents a problem. This was written, let's say, in round terms, 2,000 years ago. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the end of all things is near. Now, most of us would not consider 2,000 years to be near. And who knows how much longer it's going to be before he actually returns. So what does he mean? He means... Live as though the end is near. You don't know. I don't know when he's coming back. And these things are to be placed in the context of, of the return of Christ, an accountability, a judgment to come. Now, of course, there are many cartoons in our magazines showing a man with crazy hair and a robe and a sign that says, Repent, the end is near. And people say, implied in the cartoons, is he's crazy. He, he's out of it. He doesn't dress right. He doesn't groom right. He's got the wrong message. He's living his life not constructively but destructively. The Bible, on the other hand, says he's not crazy. He's right. He's absolutely right. And he's giving you a necessary warning. Which is it? Now, the answer, of course, in church on Sunday morning is, of course, the crazy man isn't crazy. But during the week. I was talking to a man this week who was doing a benefit prize fight with a friend. He's a former mayor of his city in Florida. And he agreed to do a uh, fundraiser. Two of the men well-known in town would get in the ring for three one-minute rounds. And the other man is a friend of his, and he called me, and he said, I want you to pray for me. <laughs> I said, pray for you? He said, yeah. He said, we've talked it over, and we're going to be easy on each other. He's a big man. And the other guy, he says, he's got a mighty left hook. He said, pray for me. I said, why? He said, because there'll be about 600 people there. And when they start yelling, and they start urging us on, we're going to forget what we agreed to. <laughs> and somebody's going to get hurt. He sent me my cell phone pictures. He, he survived. But it's true. When, when everyone else is saying something else, you know, regardless of what 
what fix we might have made with the, with the, with the circumstances goes out the window. And we may believe that the Bible is true when it says the end, is all, the end of all things is near, but when we live in a culture and society where nobody else believes that way and practically acts that way, then we get carried away too. But notice this very important. Is it right and is it true that the end of all things is near? Yes, it is. Jesus said himself when he was here, even before Peter wrote this, be ready for the second coming. I'm coming back. And no man knows the hour. And when I do come, it will be like a thief in the night because people will not be prepared. So here's another warning outside of the Gospels. Be prepared. The end of all things is near. And when someone says so, they're not crazy. They're in their right mind. They are telling you the truth. And it's the context of, of our so-called application of the gospel is, is this. Jesus is coming back, and I've got to answer for what I'm doing. So if Jesus is coming back any time that he might come, and he could audit the books at any time, how should we then live? Well, there are many places we could look for answers to this. This is Peter's answer here. He says, therefore... Because the end of all things is near, be clear-minded. The Greek term here is often paired with, uh, by contrast with the word mania. A crazy person is not clear-minded. But a clear-minded person has a lively awareness of, his, of Jesus' return, and this makes crazy people sane and sober. If there is a God, there will be a reckoning, and to live as if there won't be a reckoning is crazy. Right? If there is a God, there's going to be a final judgment. Almost everyone agrees to that. Even the people that don't believe there's a God. If there were one, they would say, okay, I grant that he's keeping some kind of score and there will be a final judgment. What are you betting that he is wrong? That he won't bring an accounting? Sanity, therefore be self-controlled. The same idea is in chapter 1. And verse 13, therefore prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. There it is again, a, second, a note of the second coming. He's coming back. Prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, and set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when he comes. Not if, when he comes when he's fully revealed. So, sober yourself. Don't be caught up in drunkenness, foolishness, distracted in all kinds of other ways. Be clear-minded and self-controlled, these two together. Act with integrity. The ends never justify the means. How do you know Jesus will not show up in the middle of your lie? We don't. And so it's never smart to make a deal with the devil and to agree to do something, even temporarily, that is wrong. There is something to be said for steadfastness because he watches. And we don't know when he might come back. And so it's only bright and insightful to do as he says. The other day I saw someone on the street pick up a gum wrapper. 
They looked around. Nobody, I mean, I don't think they saw me, and they, there was nobody else around to see it. They just picked it up and threw it in the trash can. I said, boy, I wish I could do that. Most of the time, what I want to do is what I know will be evaluated. He just picked that gum wrapper up because it was a nuisance. Not to be thanked, not to be noticed, but because it was the right thing to do. And maybe because he knew he had a Heavenly Father who saw the kindness as well. This is not the same thing as working our way to heaven. This is simply a way of gratitude and of response and of faithfulness that includes the grand thing of self-control. That's exactly what returned to the crazy man in the Gospels who cut himself and lived in the tombs and was rejected by his countrymen. Jesus came, spoke to him, sent the evil spirit out, and he was clothed and sitting in his right mind. That's what the gospel does. Over time, we learn to think in a way that pleases God. And we learn to pick up a gum wrapper, even if nobody else is watching. Because we know that he is. He sees. And he's pleased by a faithful child's actions. That is sanity. That is clear-mindedness. That's not looking for one's reward here, but knowing that one has a Father in heaven who will judge and even now is seeing all that we think and do and say. This, of course, again, let me say, is based on one fundamental foundational truth that there is a God and he's told us what to do. Many people don't believe this. And in response, I have this quote from C.S. Lewis on page 11. If truth is objective, and it is, but not everyone agrees, but if it is, if we live in a world that we didn't create and cannot change merely by thinking, if the world is not really a dream of our own, then the most destructive belief we could possibly believe would be the denial of this primary fact, the denial that truth is objective. Don't make this mistake. That's the mistake of the crazy person. It's the crazy person who says, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. And you used to behave, he says, in a crazy manner. For you have spent enough time, verse 3, in the past doing what the pagans chose to do, choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Now, even if you weren't, as they say, a rounder or a carouser, you know that you spent some time doing exactly what you thought was right. And that's what they were doing, regardless of objective truth. I don't care what the church says. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care what God says. I'm going to get mine. The Bible's answer is, the end of all things is near. And accounting is building, building up right now. You need to be warned. So you can't say on the day of judgment, nobody told me. Nobody said there'd be a test. I hated pop quizzes in school. The teacher would say, put your books away and take out your pens and pencils and a piece of paper. Or pass out a test to us on the spot without warning. There was always a chill that ran through me, even if I felt like I was keeping up. 
what is going to be asked? And I certainly wasn't able to prepare for this. I had no warning that I was going to have to give an account here right in this class right now. Maybe you'd like to live that way, but I didn't like it. That's the same thing here, only much, much greater. Put your books away. Clear your desk. I'm coming back. In the meantime, you should live with sanity and self-control. And with love. Keep love constant above all. Eight, verse 8, love each other deeply or in an ongoing way because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality, for example, without grumbling. Use whatever gift you have to serve others faithfully. That's a way to love. Love is not just kindness. It's not just patience. It's not just the things listed in 1 Corinthians 13. It's also these things. Overlooking a multitude of sins and offenses. Jesus said something like 70 times 7. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. That is, give without looking to receive. And use whatever gift you have to serve others faithfully administering God's grace. You love by serving, as he said before. Take what you have and use it. That's a form, a high form, a high expression of love. Do what you're good at for the benefit of others. Make a living at it, perhaps. But certainly be faithful in it so that you may administer God's grace in its various forms. And we're doing this, of course, with the Lord watching us. As I say in the paragraph, believers are not afraid of punishment. We're not doing this because we're afraid. But we are afraid of meeting someone who has always loved us and will not reject us. And in the midst of living and have him arrive and show up in the midst of living in an ungrateful life. Our motive for holy living is not fear, but that we may have disappointed him by not living as if we were completely loved. Every sin for us becomes a personal betrayal, then, of our lover. Paul says he has given love into our hearts. He has shed it abroad so that we might share it with others and not keep it to ourselves. And so our motive for holy living is not fear, but that we might have disappointed him and kept our light under a bushel and been unwilling to give as we had been given to, in full measure to others. In other words, unprofitable and ungrateful servants who will not share what they have been so abundantly given, time, talent, treasure, concern and interest, Patience. And so how should we then live? With sanity and self-control, with love. But it's all too much already. This is a short list. There are other lists we could have looked at, especially in Paul's writings. This is a short list. I've only mentioned three things and been moving rather quickly. But let's just be reminded, Peter says, let's just be reminded. When you're doing this, just remember you can't do this yourself. 
For if anyone serves, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. So whether speaking or serving with one's hands, in all things, God may be praised through Jesus Christ. If God is to be glorified by ministry in his name, it must be undertaken and performed in his strength. Servant ministry is draining, and we will run out of endurance if we do not seek his help. And this explains why we get embittered and soured on serving others. We say, I tried that. I called her. I went over. I talked to her. I tried to help her. She wouldn't listen. I give up. And besides that, Jesus said you can shake the dust off your feet, you know, when you go into a village. We can find a few verses to justify giving up. But the fact of the matter is, my friends, that we undertake ministry, myself included, in our own strength. And of course we run out of strength. And we try to love our wives and our children in our own power. And of course we give up. And we go dry. Because we were never intended to do right or to live according to these things in our own strength. He never said, all right now, I've wound you up, now go do it. No, he says, I will be with you. I will go with you in these things. And so I'm calling you to something that I I not only kept myself perfectly in my son when he was on the earth, but I have promised to go with you. I don't expect you to do these things in in your own strength. And if you do, you'll fail. So Peter is very clear. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. Leaning on him. The world doesn't need more selfish do-gooders. The world needs more Christians who are simply serving in the strength of the Savior. In his strength. So when you grow tired and weary in well-doing, and when you feel like giving up, ask yourself, have I been doing this myself? Have I been relying on my own strength to get through? Have I been failing to draw upon the vast resources of His grace by simply trying to do good? Most often the answer is yes. This quote from Peter Scazzaro, Work for God that is not nourished by a deep interior life with God will eventually be contaminated by other things such as ego, power, needing approval of and from others, and buying into the wrong ideas of success and the the mistaken belief that we can't fail. Oh, my friends, we come now to a table in which our Lord himself has staked his life upon these truths. He has said, not just do this, not just my word is the foundation of of your life, but it is the foundation of my life. Time and time and time again, throughout his earthly ministry, he refers to the scriptures, not least of which on the cross, as his sustaining power. The scriptures sustained him, they sustain us. And he has given us, there's no point in, the cross and the scriptures cannot be divided. You cannot have the cross without the Bible. It can't happen. Because the, the cross is founded upon the fundamentals of the truth of the scriptures. 
And because it is, there's hope that these things are really true, no matter what other people say and do. These things are really fundamentally solid, foundational truths. The Ten Commandments shall always stand. The morality of the scriptures will ever be true. Not a jot or tittle will pass away from the word of God until all has been fulfilled. Over and over again we are reminded. So how should we live? Like the Bible says. In God's strength. According to these precepts. They're true. They guided Jesus. They guide us. But please don't try to do them because I say so, or in your own strength. We are basing our lives upon something eternal, and we will give an account to someone who's watching. Let's do it to please him, for indeed obedience does please him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not you will go to church, or you will tithe, Or you will pray, you will keep my commandments. And we don't have an ethics-based religion. Our religion is based on Jesus. But he told us this is what he wants from us. And if we love him back, we will give it to him. Shall we pray? Oh, Lord, you know this isn't easy for us. We, We stumble and fall here a great deal. As Peter wrote these words so long ago to the church in Asia Minor, we, we see the strength of them today, and we, we must confess that oftentimes we're not clear-minded. We give in to anger, bitterness, sarcasm. We're not self-controlled. We're profligate, pleasure-seeking people who, who do almost anything to be amused. We are not loving We do not cover a multitude of sins. We remember a multitude of sins. And we often try to serve you in church and out in our own strength, and we fail. So we thank you that we have these reminders that the end is near. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Come and set things right. For we need you. And in these moments of communion with you and with each other, may you sweeten our fellowship with you and with each other. And may you give us your strength, your spirit, your power, that we might please you. We know you're watching, and we know you can't be pleased with some of the things we've said and thought and done. But this day, we seek to please you afresh. Through Christ our Lord we ask it. Amen.